All right, we're going to turn our Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. No vacancy is the title. I was going to do uh, the, all the verses leading to the end of the chapter, but this is just too important. And I will say, from a heads-up perspective, this is mature content uh, because we're going to dive into the realm of the demonic world. And this is going to be one interesting teaching. Jesus actually uses this as an analogy or illustration of what's happening in the nation of Israel, their, namely their unbelief despite him coming to them. Yet, it's going to give us one of the few insights into the realm of the demonic exorcisms, what happens after someone is freed from that, etc. So that's the text before us. So I'll leave it up to you parents and those of you watching via live stream um, if you want your children to be part of this. We're picking it up in verse 43. Let's stand to our feet for the reading of God's word if you're able. Jesus is speaking, Matthew 12, 43. We're moving verse by verse through the entire gospel. Now, Jesus speaking, when the unclean spirit, Mark, uh, Matthew 12, 43, goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. They go and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation. You can have a seat. Jesus, you are the one that has the best insight into this unseen realm that we hear a lot about in the Bible and some of us have had some close-up experiences with. This is a, an area where we need your covering. In every area of life, we do need your covering. But when we delve into topics like this, we need an extra special spiritual covering. So would you provide that right now? Would you give us clarity in terms of going through the text, making the right applications, the right insights, Lord? Uh, I pray ultimately this would be beneficial for uh, all who hear this, wherever they may be with you, Lord, that they, this would drive them to you. Uh, the, this in, these insights would also bring us uh, encouragement and even security in, in our position in Christ. And so I, I pray as we lay this time at your feet that you be glorified both in the teaching of the word of God and the response of your church. Give us ears to hear what you would say to us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. The title, No Vacancy, the section, Matthew 12, 43 through 45, Jesus opens with the words, now. Now, when the unclean spirit goes out of a man. Now, Jesus had delivered a man in verse 22. If you look back in the context just for a second, uh, there was a demon-possessed man brought to Jesus, Matthew 12, 22. He was blind and mute. If you were with us, I suggested to you that that's a picture of the nation of Israel at this time. Not everybody, but specifically the religious leadership elite of the day blind to the things of God, not speaking the praise of God, blind and mute. This guy becomes a symbol, but it's a very real case of demon possession. He was brought to Jesus, and Jesus, as he always did, healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. The response from the crowds was amazement, 23. And they started to say, well, this man, you could say it this way, has to be the Messiah, doesn't he? But the Pharisees began to make their accusations. They could not deny his power, 24. But they accused him of casting out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler or the prince of the demons. Jesus will say Beelzebul is Satan. So they accused Jesus. Uh, they, they couldn't deny his power. So they said, no, he, he delivers people from possession by the power of Satan. And then Jesus gave us that logical argument, right? That's ridiculous. Satan's not going to cast out Satan. He's not going to push his demon forces out of ground they've taken. That's ridiculous. He uses logic. And then he says to them, you're in danger of committing a sin that makes a lot of people nervous, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And that message was a few weeks ago. And if you want to go back and listen to that, I'm not going to delve into that right now. But Jesus then says to the nation, Something, they asked for a sign. You know, we want to see a sign. He was doing signs left and right. He said, this evil and adulterous generation asked for a sign and it's not going to get one. 
It's only going to get the sign of Jonah. Just as Jonah was in the belly of the great sea monster three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. Speaks of his death and his resurrection. Shane preached that to us last time. And when he did, there are many scholars that believe that Jonah died in the belly of the sea monster and was resurrected as he was spit out on the beach. And surfers were like, dude, no way. Yeah, he had a seaweed hat going on. He was probably a little bit albino. Dude, tell us about the message. Anyway, surfers, probably the first ones that got saved. We don't know for sure. That's just conjecture. But anyway, so Jonah obviously goes into Nineveh, and there's a great revival from the king down. Even the animals are, you know, repentant. And Jesus says, someone greater than Jonah is here. Someone greater than Solomon is here. The one that called Jonah is here. The one that gave the wisdom to Solomon is here. You have had the opportunity of a million lifetimes. Think about world history. Think about uh, the history of Scripture from the book of Genesis all the way to the time that we live now. One generation got about a three-year window to experience the Messiah. The King of Kings and Lord of Lords prophesied in the Old Testament had arrived. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I am here. And even people in his own town kicked him out. The religious elite couldn't deny his power, but rejected him largely. And Jesus said, you've had the greatest opportunity anyone could have, and it happened in about three years. Three, three and a half year ministry of Jesus. Yes, he lived to about 33, but His ministry was actually only three to three and a half years. That's it. So anyone who got to hear him preach, got touched by his hands and healed, etc. Anyone who got to experience like the apostles, the calming of the storm or the casting out of demons, got the opportunity of a million lifetimes. And here's the question. When you get an opportunity, what do you do with it? Too much is given, much is required. So Jesus is basically saying, you don't need another sign, but if you want a final sign, I'll I'll give it to you. You're going to kill me, and I'm going to rise three days later, and it's going to be the ultimate sign, and still, most of you are not going to believe, because the issue is not the evidence. The issue is your heart. And so that's what's been going on. That's the backdrop. Now, having delivered this man and and given the warning to the nation, Jesus goes back to what we might call the illustration or the parable. He had mentioned in verse 29, if you take another peek back just to set this up, he actually go back to 28. He had said, but if I cast out demons by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house? That's a picture of Satan and carry off his property, what he possesses. We'll talk about that in a moment. Unless he first binds the strong man, then he will plunder his house. He who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters. Now, Jesus had been binding the strong man. Obviously, there was a canopy of darkness over Israel at this time. 400 years of prophetic silence from Malachi to to Matthew to the coming of John the Baptist. And he's announcing the kingdom of God. The people sat in darkness. They saw a great light. And doesn't it amaze you, as you read the New Testament, it does me, every time I flip a page of the New Testament, Jesus is exercising another demon out of somebody. And you have to ask the question, just stepping back for a moment, how in the world does God's covenant land end up under this sort of darkness? How is it that every village Jesus seems to go to, and even in the book of Acts with the apostle Peter and Paul primarily being you know, the, the highlights of the book of Acts, they're running into demon-possessed people. And that may not surprise you in Athens or you know, in some other pagan city. But in Israel and in the villages and even in the synagogues, Left and right, read the Gospel of Mark. It seems like every chapter, he's casting out demons out of people. How did they get there? How is it that a covenant nation like this, blessed by Almighty God, is now under this cloak of demonism and darkness? And Jesus moves through in his earthly ministry, and he comes and he delivers person after person. You guys know the stories. And then he gives us this rare insight We have a lot about 
the demonic realm in the Bible that's mentioned, but not too much about the details. And I will say to you that even though his illustration is an illustration, uh, ultimately it's an illustration, it still does give us insights into this realm, a little bit about how it works. And, you know, it's, it's a strange realm to many of us. It's a, it's a weird thing, this unseen uh, realm. You know, today people can tend to mock it, even mock the idea of a literal devil. Some people just say the devil is evil or a generic f- term for evil, but that's nonsense. Jesus met the devil in the wilderness, right? Uh, Jesus mentioned Satan in this very chapter we're dealing with. And, and the world is really fascinated with the dark things, right? The occult, exorcist movies, you know, uh, paranormal phenomenon, ghost chasers, you name it. And in ancient Israel, when they were going to go into the land of Canaan, God said to them, I don't want you repeating the detestable practices of those people. And a lot of us think of child sacrifice, and that was an egregious thing. But here's the other thing they were doing. Witchcraft. There were mediums. There were seances. There was calling upon the dead called necromancy, practice of the occult. Uh, there were idols. And Paul said, if there is any power behind an idol or a statue, it's demonic. And Israel began to play the harlot with these false gods. They delved into this. Even Saul, the first king of Israel, went to a medium to try to get information. And he was, uh, you know, condemned for that. So the Bible's filled with this kind of stuff. And, and people are fascinated with it. There's a movie out that I haven't seen yet, but it's called Nefarious. How many of you have seen that? And that was done by a Christian producer who depicts a man on death row with, I think, a psychologist. And the man is demon-possessed. And it's just basically a dialogue between these two. And I I will just say to you, whether you see the movie or not, I'll leave that to your own conscience. But it was done to take us into this world and show us, you know, uh, what this might look like in a person who's actually about to meet his own, meet his maker and face his mortality on death row. Uh, the original Exorcist movie, I think, came out in the 70s. It depicted a girl named Regan. Regan was uh, 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 thought up by, Ray, I think it was Raymond Blatty that wrote the original uh, movie script and directed it. And they, they took all the accounts of demon possession in Catholic uh, priests, you know, journals and evangelical circles and put it all together in one movie to make it as fantastic as possible, right? That's kind of what Hollywood does. But the original story of an actual boy in The Exorcist, it was based on a real story. He was a boy, not a girl. And as I understand the story, he was in another room while his mom was involved in a seance, calling upon spirits with a medium there and so forth. And what happened was he became possessed because of what they were messing with. And some of you may be going, is is this really real? Is this just something the Bible talks about? Can I really believe it? I've actually dealt with it on a few occasions. I was at the Harvest Crusade some years ago. This is a good 15 plus years ago. I'm doing on-field counseling. A woman had come down at the altar call and she said that she was being harassed by multiple demonic spirits, even while she was walking down the street. She was experiencing them and she asked for prayer for deliverance. I, you know, just take that at face value. We prayed over her. And then I was called out to a house. Some of you have heard this story uh, within the last three to four years. And uh, it was a family that I knew well. And I walked into the house skeptical. I had heard that there was some phenomenon going on and uh, things happening to this particular individual attested by multiple people. And when I got there, I was skeptical and I began to ask some questions. I was greeted very normally. But quickly, when I began to ask some questions about church and Jesus, this person went comatose. I was talking to them sitting at a kitchen table and they just went, and stood there for like probably a good minute, just like frozen. And I had heard from other experts that that's one sign that something's going on. And we were going like this and clapping, you know. And then finally the person came out of it. And then we spent about 15 or 20 minutes in prayer trying to deliver this person from possession, which by God's grace did occur. And quickly that person then prayed to open their heart to Christ, which is the first thing you want to do, right? Because you don't want that house to be unoccupied, right? We'll talk about that in a second. 
And so at that table, after that occurred, which was a glorious moment, there was another unbeliever sitting there and a believer sitting at the table said, I've heard that when these things leave, they look for another spot. What about him? And I looked at him and I said, are you ready to become a Christian? And he said, yeah, 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 yeah. Tell me what to do. Tell me what to do. Because he had seen some of this stuff and he had seen some of these manifestations prior to that evening. And I will tell you, I'm no expert and I would never go looking for this, but I got called out. And the biggest thing on my heart that night was just to see this person delivered. And by God's grace, it occurred. But I've heard that there's been times when others have gone out to locations and it's been hours of prayer and battle uh, to see a person delivered. And I will tell you this, I don't understand all the angles of this. It's a strange world to me as well. But the Bible does attest to the world nonetheless. And right from the lips of Jesus, Jesus talks about an unclean spirit. What makes a spirit unclean? I don't know for sure. But I would imagine that the word describes the spirit, right? A filthy, ugly spirit. Maybe uh, we would say that Satan is the ultimate unclean spirit, making himself unclean. This is Revelation 18, 1 and 2. Just, we'll try to put it up on the screen for you. Revelation 18, 1 and 2 says these words. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. The earth was illumined with his glory. He cried out with a mighty voice, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She's become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit, a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. Unclean spirits are mentioned in Mark and Luke. Um, we can also see an unclean spirit in Zechariah 13.2, mentioned uh, related to the city of Jerusalem. There is a little bit of debate about Mystery Babylon. And if you've ever studied the book of Revelation, you know there's different takes on what Mystery Babylon is. We know it's not literal Babylon from the language. What is it? Is it a conglomerate of end times nations? Is it uh, something else? People have thought, some people have thought it's even America. What is Mystery Babylon? Well, there's a, there's a group of scholars that believe that Mystery Babylon, much like Israel or Jerusalem specifically is called Sodom. Earlier in Revelation in Egypt, it's a, a symbolic uh, name. And that mystery Babylon is also Jerusalem who rejects the Messiah and becomes a dwelling place of demons and every kind of hateful bird. And, and here's where the link may occur. There's a website called Josephus.org if you're interested, and you should be. Josephus was a Jewish Roman historian who saw Jerusalem fall in A.D. 70. What he reports in his book, which is a pretty long book, he call, it's called Jewish Wars, and there's perspectives on what occurred there. And it got so bad when Rome finally devastated Jerusalem in A.D. 70 that demonic things were going on. People were doing unspeakable things to try to survive uh, from starving, People were turning on each other. And firsthand accounts say that in a period of basically from Passover in April to September, about a five-month siege by Titus Vespasian and his Roman legions, 1.6 million Jewish people, children, men, and women were killed. An ugly, ugly moment. And why did it occur? Well, the nation had had the king of kings come to them and they rejected him. And I'm going to show you a prophecy that Jesus spoke over the nation, very famous one, at the end of this message where he predicts the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70 and, and gives us details. It's a very powerful and yet sad uh, prophecy. In fact, as Jesus speaks it, he's weeping over the city. But we're a little ahead of ourselves. So let's just... Look at verse 43 again and just see that an unclean spirit can go in and out of a man. We've just seen that in Jesus exercising that spirit. When it goes out, here we have a little insight into what happens. It passes through waterless places. That's the middle of 43. If you have an NIV, it says arid. The New King James says dry places. If you have a New Living Translation, it says the spirit goes into the desert. 
seeking rest and does not find it. Now, this gives us a little bit of an insight that when, a, when an exorcism occurs, the spirit doesn't die. It, it goes out from where it was. And it's seeking rest. What does that mean? I don't know for sure, but it would seem that a demonic spirit wants another body to inhabit, or as Spurgeon said, mind to control. And so this is just an interesting insight. It's coming from Jesus. And he says it goes out and it starts seeking rest. Now, you think about dry or desert places, you could think about, well, maybe this is simply a picture from Jesus of the spirit going out and he's encountering dryness, but looking for like, uh, you know, the image would be like a, a pool of water, or some sort of refreshment. That may be what's going on here. But the dry places may be, and this is where I would lean, a picture of that the demonic thrives in the dry desert spiritual places. In the Bible, water is a metaphor for God's spirit. Psalm 1 paints a picture of a man who's fruitful. He meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. He'll be like a tree planted by what? Streams of water. He's productive, yielding a crop, right? In John 7, Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes and lives in a life, it's as if torrents of living water flow, if you will, in and out of that person. And, and he spoke of the Spirit. In John 4, when he speaks to the woman at the well, he says, if you drink that water, you're going to thirst again and again and again. But I have some water to give you that will spring up to eternal life. Now, once again, he's speaking of spiritual realities, right? We know that God is like water uh, to our lives. We, we know there's a lot of scriptures that speak about refreshment and so forth in the Lord. And Psalm 63, 1, David says these words, O God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So don't need to be dogmatic here, but I would just say this, that when the Spirit goes out, apparently he has his best success in dry places. Because if he encounters a watered life, he has no access. And we'll, we'll bring that home in a few minutes. So he goes to the dry places. But here's the other thing to think about. He doesn't necessarily automatically have access because he seeks rest, but he doesn't find it, which is interesting because if he's, if he's in dry places, let's just say he, he's gone to a spiritually dry location and he's pushing on doors, he doesn't have automatic entrance to those lives. Why is that? I don't know for sure, but I've always understood and I'll draw you a parallel verse. Revelation 3.20, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and sup with him and he with me. Now that's written to a church, but that's a, you could say a dry church. Here's my, my point. The handle of the door is on your side. And if you open it, that's why a lot of the possession cases that people have chronicled involve seances, Ouija boards, calling on spirits, new age stuff, occult stuff, because it seems to be the case that you have the handle. And if you open the door, they will happily come in. That's the best way to put these ideas together. So this is the phenomenon of possession. Why does it occur? Why are certain people more susceptible than others? Why does it seem to be limited? What are the conditions uh, by which someone is more susceptible? I, I, I mentioned to you dabbling with dark things. Turn over to Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke. We're going to go to chapter 8. But I think it, it is safe to say that either you or someone close to you opens the door. Some of you have stories where you've, you've experienced some of this. Some years ago, I preached a sermon. I was a younger pastor at the time, probably about 20 years ago. And I was touching on some of these occult issues. And a gentleman came up and I said, Do you th did you think that that was too strong? And he said, no, that wasn't strong enough. And I said, what do you mean? He said, I dabbled with this stuff and I got a face-to-face close-up of some of the dark powers and you didn't say enough. And I took the rebuke as I should take it. 
Yes, brother. You know, so I'm not going to soft pedal anything for you today, but I'm going to tell you what I know and what I don't know. Here's the case of the demoniac in the Gerasenes. It's a familiar story. Luke 8.26. They sailed, Luke 8.26, to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had come out onto the land, he was met by a certain man from the city who was possessed with demons, who had not put on any clothing for a long time and was not living in a house but in the tombs. Talk about a scary picture. Seeing Jesus, he cried out and fell before him, said in a loud voice, what do I have to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had been commanding the unclean spirit. Now there's our there's that phrase, unclean spirit, to come out of the man. Sounds like it had been happening for a little bit. For it had seized him many times, and he was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard. Yet he would burst his fetters and be driven by the demon, notice, into the desert, into the dry places. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him, and they were entreating him not to command them to depart into the abyss, which probably speaks of final judgment. You can see the power of Jesus. They know who he is. He's the judge. But in this case, the demonic possession got worse, and there were more and more demons that had invaded this man's life. So we would uh, probably conclude that this was a progressive situation, and maybe Maybe they left for a while and came back, but now his, his situation was worse, and nobody even wanted to deal with these. And some of the Gospels say there's two, and some say one. You remember in The Wizard of Oz, uh, it says, Witch's Castle, just ahead with a little arrow. I'd turn back if I were you. That, I think that's the sign leading up to these guys, right? So you can see that the demons entered. Now, in the next book to your right is John. So in the famous chapter of the foot washing of the apostles on the eve or just before the day of the crucifixion, this is what the Bible records. Jesus has been talking about a betrayer. John 13, 26, Jesus answered, that is the one, John 13, 26, for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. The, the apostles, Peter, John, who is it? Who is it? Who's the betrayer? Jesus said, it's the one who's going to dip the morsel that I give to him, middle of 26. So when Jesus had dipped the morsel, he took it and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After the morsel, Satan then, what? Entered him, into him, Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Now, it may surprise you to know that there was an extra participant at the Last Supper. And in a context of a dinner meal, Judas was possessed by Satan himself. Now, how did that happen? Go back to Matthew chapter 12. Well, remember, Judas was already playing for the other side, wasn't he? He had already made the agreement for 30 pieces of silver. He had already been stealing from the money bag, which he had control over. Jesus said he was a devil from the beginning. So when this occurs, Judas has already opened up his life to satanic possession, if you will. And then it happens. And it was Satan that ultimately got Judas's feet moving on the fateful night when Jesus is betrayed and the Garden of Gethsemane and all of that. Bottom line, it would seem that those who end up in this kind of situation have opened the door to some extent. That's why don't mess with it. Brothers and sisters, please hear me. Don't mess with it. Don't you stop and get your palm read. Don't you open yourself to tarot cards or any of that nonsense. Don't do it. Because I'm going to tell you that even though I don't think that you could be taken over by demonic power, that your God... If you open that door, he'll let you get slapped around a little bit. Amen? All right, so I'll just leave that to sit before you. All right, so this is Matthew 12. And you can see now the demon going out, seeking rest. He doesn't find what he's looking for. Then it says, 44, Matthew 12. I'll return to what? My house. What do you mean, my house? 
He's claiming ownership of that house, notice. From which I came, when it comes, it finds my house unoccupied. It's vacant. It's swept. It looks good. It's put in order. But there's nothing there. We would say the Holy Spirit is not there. There's a vacancy sign. And I'll just say, when it comes to the demonic realm, we will not leave the light on for you. Can I get a witness? You guys are a little too serious right now. You're not even laughing at some of what I thought were my better jokes today. (laughs) We will not leave the light on for you. The sign will read, no vacancy, baby, (laughs) right? But in this case, it's tidy, it's swept, but unoccupied. Now, Jesus, when he addressed the Pharisees, said, you clean the outside of the dish and cup, but inside it's filthy. I have a friend who told a story, and I can't remember if it's real or uh, metaphorical, but he said, uh, maybe it was a friend of his who told him about a couple that kept coming over for dinner. And they'd come over and, you know, like an everybody loves Raymond kind of thing, you know, always showing up. And so he said after dinner one night, he put the plates on the floor till the dog licked them clean and then put them right back in the cabinet after the dog was done and said those people never returned for dinner. That's one strategy if you have some stragglers, just, just saying. <laughs> Clean the outside of the cup and dish, but it's dirty on the inside. You wash the tombs, you whitewash them, but inside you're full of dead men's bones and all sorts of wickedness. Oh, you look good to the people. Spurgeon said, you know, a moralist can be just as much under the power of God as a crack addict on the street. And when Spurgeon says a moralist, he's talking about a person who looks so tidy and religious and got it all together. They're just as susceptible to the power of evil. Jesus in John 8 said to the religious Pharisees, you are of your father. Oh, are you ready? Buckle your seatbelt. You're of your father, the devil. And you want to do the will of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. Now, this is the dialogue that Jesus had with some of the religious leadership. And I think what he's saying to, the, to those who are listening is, you can clean up the outside, but if you don't have the spirit of the living God, he said to, the Nic- to Nicodemus, Nick came to him at night, you must be born again. Unless you're born of water and the spirit, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. Amen? Jesus said that. You can be as religious as you want to be and void of the spirit. In the book of Jude, The false teachers are called, they come into your love feast. They look good, but they're void of the spirit. You can look at Jude. I think it's right around verses 19 through 21. They have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. So you can look religious, but if you don't have the spirit of the living God, you can be tidy, you can be swept up, but you're unoccupied. And the demon says, that's my house. And that's the the idea of possession. Possession means to own, to possess, right? That's the word. Possession speaks of ownership. So the demon says, oh yeah, I I got kicked out just for a minute, but I'm coming back to my house. Spurgeon, he has quitted occupancy, but has not given up ownership. The foul fiend calls the man my house. His audacity is amazing. He did not build or buy that house, and he has no right to it, but he claims it nonetheless. Let me give you an example from a parallel world. I was talking to Pastor John a little bit, who comes from, uh, he uh, co-founded a recovery ranch, and he would tell you in his own testimony, he struggled with, with drugs and addiction and stuff. And the Lord used that as his ministry for many, many years. And he was telling me from Matthew 12, from these verses, you can also make the case for how addiction works. And basically it's this. You're an addict and you get clean. So you go to a program or whatever 
And a lot of addicts, instead of drinking to excess now, they just drink a ton of coffee and smoke cigarettes. You, you guys have all seen that, right? They replace one thing for another. But let's just say that they get clean. But then they go back to that thing. Let's just say it's a drug. Well, once you reopen the door to that, it can get worse. And the latter situation can become worse than at first. Because now you know better And now you've known deliverance. Think about a religious context. Someone hears the message preached at the Harvest Crusade years ago at a Billy Graham Crusade at a local fellowship. An altar call is given, whether they come forward or not, to pray this prayer. And and you guys have seen it over and over again. And, and And many of those people that you know prayed, and they were friends of yours, and they did some stuff for the kingdom, which we'll find out in Matthew 13 with the parable of the sower, why that happens. You know what? They're nowhere to be found. They heard the truth. They responded to it, at least on the outside. But now they're back in the world. And Peter says in 2 Peter 2, they're like a dog that's returned to its own vomit. And the context is false teachers paralleling Jude with 2 Peter. But but the idea is, if you return to your sin, you're like the pig that gets cleaned off and goes back to wallowing in the mud or like a dog returning to its vomit. Now, you all know, all dogs are Christians. So why dogs do this thing? It's one of the ugliest things. They will drink out of your toilet bowl, right? And they will return to their vomit. It's an ugly scene. But it is meant to convey a very strong truth. What you've gotten out of you, don't take it back in you. Please don't do that. And when your dog does it, you're like, no, you lick me every night. (laughs) You lick my hand. You lick my face. You are still my friend, but don't do that. So the spirit says, it's my house. And what he finds is a vacancy sign. It's in order. It's swept. I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to show you some of the realities of the Christian once you become born again. So let's turn there. And let me just mention to you that O'Donnell, who has written a commentary on uh, Matthew, says it helped him to think of the temple. Remember when Jesus came at the beginning of his ministry and he cleansed the temple, he swept it out of the money changers and all that. And then he did it on the very last week of his earthly ministry. And he said, this is my father's house. It'll be called a house of prayer for all the nations. You've made it a den of thieves. And he swept it out. And O'Donnell says that he got the demon out in quotes for a day. But guess what? They went right back to what they were doing. And Jesus had swept it out, but they returned to business as usual. And maybe some people thought, hmm, Maybe I should go home and think about what he said. But for most of them, they just went right back to their money-changing stuff and to their God, which was money, right, and power. And Jesus, is, Jesus then says to them, that house that you care so much about, it's now left to you desolate, empty, unoccupied by the spirit of the living God. And he uses language that connects us back to the book of Ezekiel. The spirit of, of God departs. Sad. So what happens to us as believers? Second Corinthians 1, 20 and t- through 22 says these words. And this is probably one of the more problematic churches for Paul, the church at Corinth. And here's what he says about them. For as many, 2 Corinthians 1, 20 be the promises of God in him. They are yes, wherefore also by him is our amen to the glory of God through us. Now, he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us, believers, and gave us the spirit in our hearts as a pledge. Now, let's park there. So in the ancient world, if you were a business owner or a master and you had some cargo. Let's say that you bought a lot of stuff and you put it in some, some bins or some uh, containers. 
what they would do is, let's say that you were going to send it almost like ancient UPS or FedEx to another location, and your servants would be on the other end to receive the cargo. What they would do is they would heat up wax, hot wax, and they would take a signet ring, kind of like your signature, and they would push it onto the hot wax. And when that cargo was received on the other side at the port, it would identify who owned it, almost like you know that you probably bought the same luggage as a thousand other people at Walmart. So you put that little red ribbon on it so you can tell which one it is, right? It's kind of the idea. So they would seal it, and then the servants would say, ah, this one belongs to my master, this one belongs to my master. It's, it's a sign of ownership and protection. When you become a Christian, flipping over to Ephesians a little bit to your right, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. If it happened to the Corinthians, it certainly can happen to the Coronians. Amen? The moment that you're born again. Now, I want you to see two verses in Ephesians, extremely important, because I want to give you the positive side of the case. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 read this way. In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, Ephesians 1, 13, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were, here's our word, sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now, the seal of ownership for us is the Holy Spirit's presence, who is given as a pledge. This is the language we saw in 2 Corinthians. Of our inheritance, that word pledge is like a down payment, earnest money, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. Now, he possesses us to the praise of his glory. Flip over to Ephesians 4, look at one verse. It's verse 30. It's a good verse to connect with what we just read. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, Ephesians 4.30, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The day of redemption is the day of the Lord or when the Lord returns. You were sealed until that day. Praise God. Ownership, protection. So when the enemy comes knocking, he ain't getting in. No vacancy. Some years ago, there was a guy named Larson. He had a television program, and he claimed that Christians could be demon-possessed, and he had Christians barfing up demons in barf bags. I don't know what they did with them afterwards, but uh, that's another story. And he would say, there's a demon of lust, there's a demon of alcoholism, there's a demon of this, there's a demon of cigarette smoke smoking, and that's ridiculous. Now, while the, the demons might want you to get addicted to stuff, there's not a demon of this or a demon of alcohol. You drove to the liquor store. You lit the cigarette. Oftentimes we've met the enemy and it's the one staring back at us in the mirror. Amen? But there is no doubt that 1 Peter 5.8 says the devil goes about as a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. 1 Peter 5.8. And we do have a spiritual battle and we have to have discernment on what is the flesh and what's actually going on in the demonic realm. And we have to have a good biblical balance on that. But my point is simply this. If the Holy Spirit is living inside of you and Paul says you're the temple of the Holy Spirit, in the book of Acts 2028, 20, you've been purchased with the blood of Christ. He possesses you. You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. Glorify God in your body. Your body is the temple of the Spirit. I don't know how it works. I can't put it up on a chalkboard to fully explain it to you, but you are possessed by God. Amen? He dwells in you. This is a great privilege of the new covenant because in the old covenant, it would seem that the Spirit could come upon people for a specific task and then depart like the book of Judges and Saul, the first king of Israel. And David even prayed in Psalm 51, please don't take your Holy Spirit from me. I've seen what happened to Saul. He's terrorized, but a different spirit and only calmed by worship music. But for the believer, the moment that you are born again, the Holy Spirit comes and resides in you. You are possessed by God. Therefore, you can't be possessed by a demonic spirit. Now, I will say that ultimately, if you, as a Christian, begin dabbling with this stuff, the Lord might give you a little wake-up call. But I want to say to you, as, as Christians struggling with our theological positions, you ought not to be losing sleep over this kind of stuff. And some people do. No, you're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Yes, we need to be filled. We need to be empowered, etc. So... 
Let's look at the last verse in Matthew chapter 12. This is why Pastor Michael only did three verses. So it finds it unoccupied, 45. It goes and takes along with it seven other spirits. The number seven may not be literal here. It's a number that speaks of completion. It could speak of a complete number. It takes along seven other spirits. A righteous man falls seven times in a day. He gets back up. May not be a literal number. Should I forgive my brother seven times? Jesus says 70 times seven. So you can't do it 491 times? No, not a literal number. Everybody with me? Seven just could be a bunch of other spirits, right? And those other spirits are more wicked than itself, levels of wickedness, and they go and live there in that house. I know a place, the spirit says, come with me. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. And then let's not forget, though we've gotten insight into the demonic realm, this has been an illustration. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation. Wow. Jesus said, you're like a possessed man who gets delivered, but you're not occupied, and therefore you become prey, and it's even worse. You would have been better off had you never heard me preach. You would have been better off, Capernaum, if I'd never come to your town, if you're not going to respond. You would have been better off. Now, Jesus, this is my final Scripture, and I'm just going to refer to it. In Luke 19, and I think most of you know it well, triumphal entry, Jesus coming down the Mount of Olives on Lamb Selection Day. The people are singing the Hallel Psalms to him. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You know, peace on earth. And they're singing his praises, and they're, they're, they're claiming him as Messiah. And the religious leadership says, tell your disciples to cut it out. And Jesus says, if they stop, I tell you the truth, the stones are going to cry out. That, those may speak of the stones of the temple. I don't know for sure. And then as everybody's celebrating and there's clothes before him and he's on the colt, Jesus looks at the city. And you remember what he does? He begins to cry over it. And the idea of crying is he's sobbing over it. And he says, if you, only you, had known the moment of your visitation, the day of your visitation. But now, it's hidden from your eyes. And a day is coming, and he begins to prophesy now. Luke 19, read it uh, later on for yourself, starting at verse 35 and on down. He says, the enemy's coming. They're going to build up an embankment around you. They're going to trap you and your children within it. Every stone's going to be knocked down. He says in Matthew 24, not one stone left upon another. It's going to be a day of devastation because you did not recognize the day of your visitation. Modern application. Here we are in America. We have great Bible preaching on radio and television going out of the, over the airwaves, left and right, up and down, 24-7. We've had a nation largely built on Judeo-Christian principles. To much is given, much is required. Now, we've done a lot of good in the world, United States of America. We've got to celebrate. There's a lot of good that's been done by this country. And it's a privilege to be a U.S. citizen. But would to God that we repent and get back to God. Amen? We need it so desperately because we're headed down a slippery slope. But we also fix our eyes over to Israel, right? All kinds of trouble, all kinds of stuff going on. And we pray for them. Don't miss the opportunity, right? We don't know. Years ago, I was preaching, and a couple said to me that about three weeks before this interaction, they had invited a friend. She had grown up as a Jehovah's Witness, and she came in to check out what was being said in the gospel and what we taught about Jesus. And they said that she was sitting with them and... Um, they heard her say the sinner's prayer with me at the end of a Wednesday night service. And they said, oh yeah, she, she's born again and she's excited and awesome. That next week she died in a car crash. She was gone. And just before that, you know, 
We, we look at a Wednesday night and we go, ah, oh, it's just another Wednesday night Bible study. You, know? you give the invitation. No. There are strategic moments in all of our lives, right? And I'm looking at you guys, and I know the room is filled with a ton of Christians, right? Predominantly believers. I don't know every heart here, but I know you guys are committed Christians. But here's what we face, right? We go out, we preach the kingdom, and we tell people, look, you know, we want friendship evangelism, we want all that stuff, but look, there's a strategic moment when we got to get right with the Lord. Father, help us as we consider uh, some of these deep topics as your people were. Some of this is just really interesting and um, might be foreign territory for many of us, but Lord, we know it's real. You said it's real. It probably explains much of what goes on in the world that could be easily overlooked. We want to have a good biblical balance here again, Father, that we don't see a demon behind every tree, but we realize that this does happen and, and people can open the door to it and drugs and addiction can be a doorway. The occult can be a doorway. Outright rejection of the Lord. Defiance can be a doorway. So with your head and heart bowed, if you're not sure you're born again of the Holy Spirit, I would just say to you, just run to Jesus. He saves sinners. You don't have to have your life completely in order. Let him clean you up and fill you up. You have to have a moment where you turn away from your sin, your idols, even trying to be moral but empty, and cry out. Ask him to come and live inside of you. Tell him you believe in who he is, that he died on the cross rose from the dead, that he is king and Lord, that you want to follow him. Ask him to save you, to restore you, to refresh you, to give you a new beginning and a new path. Cry out. Don't let the moment pass you by. If you're a believer and you've dabbled in dark stuff, repent of it, get rid of it, and don't go back. And if you're a believer fighting the good fight of faith, putting on the armor of God every day and trying to stay strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, may he bless you. May he clothe you. May he fill you. May every day that you wake up, may you cry out for the endowment of heaven and have confidence that you're more than a conqueror through him who loves you. He began the good work. He will complete it. Stay close to him and keep battling from the side of victory. In Christ's name, amen.